Good morning. Today at the Living Stones Church is graduation day, which means everybody moves up a grade level. So if you were in a first grade class you will, and you're going to the second grade, you move up this morning, which means right now in the fall, if you are going into the fourth grade or into the fifth grade, you are now dismissed to your class. If you're going into the fourth grade or the fifth grade, if you're going into the sixth grade, you are now in here and you now have the high honor of listening to some most fantastic sermons. So welcome this morning to the Living Stones Church. We're going to be in Numbers chapter 13 is where I'm going to be. So if you brought your Bible, feel free to turn to Numbers 13. It's going to be on the screen behind me as well as one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite biblical characters. So much so that on October 18th, 1999, the Lord blessed me with a second child, a second son. And I wanted to name my son Caleb. And so the story we're going to cover this morning is from Numbers 13. It's the story of Caleb. And I named Caleb Caleb, hoping it would be prophetic in some way that as he grew up, he would would emulate some of the things we'll see this morning in the biblical character of Caleb. Well, uh, back in the 1950s, a man named Solomon Ash did some sociological experiments on leadership and compliance and those sorts of things. And one of the things he did by way of study is he got together a test group and he showed them two cards. On one card, on one card was three lines that were of different lengths, different sizes, and on the other card was just one line that would match one of the three lines on the other card. And so in the group, the question was, which of the three lines matched with the one line on the other card? Now what he did was, he took ten individuals, he put them in the same room, and he said to nine of them, I want you to choose a line that does not match. Pick the line that it's very obvious it doesn't match, but all, I want all nine of you when I say, is this the line that matches, to raise your hand, even though everyone knows it is not the right matching line. And then the study would be, what happens to the one man out, the odd man out, as they watch nine people in agreement say, yeah, that's the correct line. That's the one that looks like it does on the other card. And in the experiment, what Solomon Ash discovered was, the same thing would happen over and over again. They'd be in the room, and he'd hold up the two cards, and he'd ask, which line matches the one on this card out of these three? And nine would just very confidently raise their hand when they got to the line that was so clearly not matching, and the one stooge who was left out of the, you know, what's going on behind the scenes would have this quickly befuddled look on his face or her face, and then very sheepishly would raise their hand, knowing full well that was not the correct line. And in so doing, he began to examine the effect of groupthink and the effect of peer pressure to sway people away from the truth, even when they knew that can't be correct. And so over and over again, and bring another ten individuals, let nine in on the secret, and the one stooge over and over again would look kind of confused, look around, and next thing you know, would sheepishly put their hand up. And, there was, and it took a very special personality in the face of the nine that were so confident to say, you guys are all wrong <laughs> and ridiculous. That's the right one. And what you have there is that phenomenon of there's pressure in groups. And it happens all the time. I mean, it even happens among God's people that you can have from just the pressure of not being faithful or the pressure of being faithful. There is the temptation in churches to have group think where everyone's saying the same thing and doing the same thing because everybody else is saying it. And no one has the courage to stand up and say, actually. And what we see in Numbers 13 is sort of this phenomenon taking place among God's people. And it begins in chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. This is where it begins. Now, just by way of backstory, you need to know this. One... God has already made his people a promise. God has already said to the Israelites, I'm going to rescue you out of Egypt, and I'm going to 
I'm going to lead you to a promised land. I'm going to give your own give you your own land. So this is a promise that God has already made. That's the backstory. Number two, God's people have already seen God's power and miracles. I mean, they've seen plagues. They've seen they have stood there and watched an entire Red Sea part, and they were able to walk on dry ground. They saw a fire from heaven. They ate quail. I mean. God has worked mighty miracles. They have already seen us with their own eyes. And then you get to chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord says to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan. Now, this is the promised land, the land of Canaan. This is where God is leading his people from Israel to the land of Canaan. And he wants them to send out some spies. And so this is like 007 stuff. We've got James Bond stuff in the Bible going down to Numbers 13. Send them over to the land of Canaan, which I am giving. Listen to this which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So, how many tribes are in Israel? Does anyone know? There's 12 tribes. So they pick 12 men to serve as spies. So, see, I think this would be fun to be in this group, right? At least at this moment. 12 spies, like, you know, should you choose to accept this mission? Then something blows up. And so they're going to go off to Canaan to just take a look at what's going around. I mean, what's... And so they choose 12 men. Now look at verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country and see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or are they weak, are they few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or are they fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? So this is good. Like if you ever lived in West Texas, this is an important question. Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land because it was the season for the, the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land. And, and so for 40 days, they went off in the land of Canaan and explored the area and, and the things. Are, I mean, it's a good spy story. After 40 days, these 12 men, all from 12 different tribes of Israel, they come back to give a report of what they have seen. Look at verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron, who's his brother, and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. See what that means? It is a place of prosperity and abundance. I mean, there's milk and honey everywhere. I mean, this becomes the symbol then of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is its fruit, but the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. So this is the report. Oh, it's a great land, and here's the fruit. It's awesome looking. I mean, look at the size of these. It's like as big as your head. That's the way the grapes are. Just, it's going to be great wine. I'm just convinced of it, but... There's fortified cities, and the people there are strong. And he just started to name off the different uh, nations that are all in the land of Canaan. And, and what that means is we're going to take on the Hittites, the Jebusites. I mean, they, I mean they're all, we're going to take them on if we're going to take this land. And so this is the report. And it seems to me it's an accurate report. It's not exaggerated. They're not trying to, you know, it is, this is truly what we saw, and here's the evidence of the fruit that we saw. And then you've got one of the spies is named Caleb. And Caleb, all of a sudden, in verse 30, jumps in out of nowhere. And do you know anyone like this, a little bit reckless, a little bit risk-taking, like maybe just takes a first... I mean, I'm not saying this is about me, but I remember one time we were in uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas, and I've told this story once before, 
and there was Heber Cliffs is there, and you jump off the cliffs, it's like 70, 80 feet up in the air, and, and it's kind of scary, and there's a lake down, and you kind of jump off and hopefully not split your spleen. And, and I went with my college friends, my roommate, and we were kind of discussing, you know, should we jump off, should we not jump off, and who's going to jump and who wouldn't. And while they were talking, I thought it'd be kind of funny if I just out of nowhere just ran and jumped off. And so uh, we were talking, and so out of nowhere, I just sprinted off the cliff and jumped off. And when I went into the water, I made it okay, except for I think my hand was out like this. And so when I hit the water, it felt like my hand had exploded off of my body. But when you come up to the water, you know, all your friends are looking at, oh, it's fantastic, you should come in too. So my roommate literally spit, split his uh, swim trunks just right at the, from the impact of the... So it was really quite stupid. But this seems to me, that's the moral, moral of the story is, if your kids go to college, you should still figure out what they're doing because it could be bad. Out of nowhere, this is what Caleb, he silenced the people before Moses said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we could certainly do it. Out of nowhere, one out of the 12, Caleb, he's the one who's taking a step, he's taking a risk, he's got bold confidence, and he says we should go ahead and enter into this land. I know they're fortified cities, I know all the nations that are there, but we can certainly do it. So you've got Caleb. Well, now all of a sudden the other's here, the other, the other 10. Now there's actually two spies that were together. It was Caleb and Joshua. If you know Joshua, he will take over for Moses. Out of the 12 spies, two say, we can do it. The other 10 say this, verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. And this is what they said. The land we explored devours those living in it. Now, you see what's happening out of the report? All the people we saw there are of great size. I mean, you, see, you hear the exaggeration all of a sudden? All of the people, I'm like they're all giants. Like there's not one small dude, right? I mean, it doesn't seem like the land just devours anyone who lives in there. All we saw were they're of great size. We saw the Nephilim, and they would tell stories, I'm sure, about the Nephilim and how large they were and how strong they were and you know, the, the descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim, and we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And so all of a sudden, you could get, if you want, a social experiment going down of what happens when negativity and gossip and false reports go spreading throughout the Israelites. When 10 are willing to raise their hand and say, yeah, we're too small, and only two are willing to say, are you kidding me? We can surely do this. All of a sudden, you get to see among an entire nation what happens. And so this is the result. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. Now, these people have been made a promise. And these people have seen the mighty hand of God at work. They have seen miracles. And now they're crying, they're weeping, they're acting like a bunch of babies. Verse 2, all of the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we, we had died in Egypt... Or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land? Only let us fall by the sword. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now just think about this for a moment. They spent 400 years in Egypt as slaves. I mean, they were completely under the dominion of Pharaoh and they were mistreated and there was suffering and there was hardship. For 400 years, they cried out to God for deliverance. And now at this moment, when it gets to be a little bit insecure, a little bit scary, and oh, but they're so, those people are so big, they want to go back to that place of bondage. They want to go back to that place of slavery. They want to go back to Egypt. After God has just rescued them with his mighty... St- 
outstretched arm, now they want to go back. And this happens all the time. It happens all of the time. You'll see Jesus come into somebody's life and will begin that journey of freeing somebody from this and freeing them from that. And the hope of truly being free in Christ Jesus is what is awaiting them on the other side. And along the journey, they get insecure. Yeah, but if I leave my boyfriend, even though I know this is the worst relationship I should be in, nothing in it has been built on the foundation of God at all, and I shouldn't be with him. But what happens is as soon as that insecurity gets, but I don't want to be alone. Or there's economics at stake, and how will I pay my bills? And instead of going to the promised land that Jesus has promised you an abundant life, you want to go back to where you were. It's going back to Egypt. It happens all the time. And we see over and over again people who begin that journey, who get a little bit afraid, a little bit insecure, and they begin in their, in their freak-out moment, in their panic moment, well, let's just go back to Egypt. Because for some people, they will choose and prefer what is familiar, even if it's terrible for them, than what they do not know, because what they do not know requires faith. And in the moment of insecurity, when faith is shaken, they will choose the familiar than what God has promised. And it's sad and it's tragic, but it happens to God's people over and over again, and it's happening right now. They want to go back to at least what's familiar. At least they know Egypt. I mean, we knew what life was like there. We have no idea what life was like before us, even in the midst of God's promises. And so, what they need is a Caleb spirit. Here's what happens in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. You see, they're calling them to faith. You've got four men who is begging an entire nation to have faith, to believe the promises of God. Don't go back to Egypt. Their protection has left. The Lord is with us. God is with us, and he will, he will be the one who will give us this lamb. He's made us a promise, and they're pleading with the people, please don't do this. Do not rebel against God. And so their response to verse 10 isn't, oh, yeah, what were we thinking? It is the whole assembly talked about stoning them, and they're going to kill them. The leaders that they have been following out of Egypt, they've watched God do all these miraculous things. Now they want to kill them. And then I like this. Look at 10b. Look at the end of the verse. Then... The glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meetings to all the Israelites. Wouldn't you like to see that whole scene go down? I would have loved to have been there just to see this, where everyone's all angry and upset with Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, and they're going to kill them, and guess who shows up? God shows up. And I'm curious if in that moment the whole Israelite uh, community went, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. You ever have kids fighting but they don't know you're around? Right? Happens to my family all the time. My kids are fighting with one another, and the next thing you know, mom or dad shows up in the room, and all of a sudden the arguments have to take on a whole new form because mom and dad's here listening now. And see, God shows up, and it's not going to be the same. Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. I mean, God has had it. I mean, this is severe language. 
God has just said, I'm going to wipe out my people, and I'm going to start the whole Abraham thing. I mean, I love Abraham. I love Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but clearly the, his descendants aren't going to cut it. I'm going to wipe them all out, and I want to start with you, Moses. Now, here's an opportunity for Moses. I mean, when you think about it, what you see revealed here next is Moses' great humility and love for the people of God. Because I imagine there has to be some sort of temptation to think to himself, really? You're going to start all over again with me and my descendants. And so he has an opportunity to really elevate himself by way of stature and fame and stories. I mean, Moses is already famous, but I mean, he gets to go to a whole other level because God's going to wipe out this group of people and start all over again with Moses. But Moses doesn't do that. Look what he says here. Verse 13. I love this. Moses said to the Lord, he's kind of bargaining. And this was kind of interesting to me. But then the Egyptians will hear about it. And by your power, you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants about it, that they have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people, and that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the desert. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. See, Moses intercedes. In a moment of humility, rather than saying, "Eh, we should start this all over again. I mean, they were just trying to kill him, right? Now, if you've got a whole group of people wanting to kill you, you might be tempted to say, get them, God. (laughs) But in a great moment of humility and love, Moses intercedes for the people of Israel. And I love his argumentation, don't you? Like God hadn't thought of it, but I'm just curious how this interchange goes with God. But Moses says, oh, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I mean, you're God and all, but if you kill all these people now... The Egyptians and all the other nations will hear about it, and they know that you are their God and they're your people, and they might think to themselves that you were not able to keep your promise, and that's why you had to do this. And so let me remind you what you've said, that you are slow to anger, and you're abounding in love. You're a forgiving God. It doesn't mean that their sins won't go uh, that will be punished. There will be discipline involved here. But he reminds God of his own nature, and it's this, it is in the moment uh, Moses interceding. And so this is what God does. Verse 20. Then the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you've asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory, the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. See, this is huge. This is a huge moment in the history of Israel. An entire generation is about to be disqualified from seeing the promised land. It was God's heart and his intent from the beginning that they'd see the promised land, but because they continually rebelled, because they had no faith, because in this moment they kept choosing that line when it was clearly that line, God is saying, everyone who's had contempt for me in this generation will not get to see the promised land. They won't. This will be the cost. This will be the penalty. This will be the discipline of their sin. Except for verse 24. But because my servant Caleb had a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, 
I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. See, I love this verse. This is my favorite. I mean, it is Caleb who has a different spirit. He serves God wholeheartedly. See, Caleb, you know what Caleb means literally in Hebrew? You know what it means? Dog. So you dog lovers out there, uh, you understand if you have a dog that you love, the things that you love most about it is uh, the sense of loyalty and faithfulness, which is also what Caleb means. It moves on to loyalty and faithfulness. And see, um, my middle son, I want him to grow up. You know how there's always that weak side strengths to your personalities? I mean, I want him to be the kind of a kid that when he grows up, he will be stubborn. And I want him to be convicted in a way where if the rest of his friends are going this direction, he doesn't have to. That he's content to go this direction because it's right. And, and, see, and I understand there's kind of strengths of weakness. I mean, that bullheaded stubbornness, I know it can come back to bite a parent and just get out there and mow the yard right now. <laughs> but I want him to be that Caleb spirit that's different than everybody else. That even if everybody else is saying, oh, we, God can't do that, he has no hesitancy whatsoever to say, oh, yes, he can. That any time something comes against him or one of his family members or his friends, whether it's illness or sickness or power, whatever it is, that we have promises given to us by God, and he'll be the first to say, oh, yes, he can. That he'll be able to adopt for himself uh, that spirit, that Caleb spirit that serves God. And not just Caleb. I want Isaac and I want Alexander. I want all of us at the Living Stones Church to have a different spirit. I mean... There might be other churches who might shrink back from the promises that God has given or might be afraid of some things that God is wanting them to do. I don't want us ever to be afraid. I really do believe that there are 42,500 people who live on the south side of South Bend who are desperate to hear that God loves them, crazy in love with them, and no matter what they've done, no matter what they've experienced, that they could come to God, that they could find relief and grace in Jesus Christ. And I'm very much convicted that as, you be, as we begin to move out and participate in the 42,500 people who live around us, what we'll learn and we'll discover is, I mean, you've got marriages that are bankrupt. You've got such extreme situations. You've got addictions that are, there'll be stories and there'll be encounters that will overwhelm us. But in the process, I want us to have a different spirit, one that's wholeheartedly devoted to God, that can look at anything going around and say, it isn't near as big as God. That no matter what struggles, what problems, what issues, what crime, what I step test. It doesn't matter. By the way, just as a side note, did you know Monroe School, just a block and a half away, had the largest increase of I step test scores from this year to last year? Did you know that? 22 in math alone. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, we love Monroe School. But I'll tell you, nothing is too big for God. And us to be wholly, wholeheartedly devoted to Him in every way, just like Caleb. It's a different spirit. And so it goes on. Look at verse 26. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've, I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, which probably isn't the first time. They've been complaining since they left Egypt. So, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census, who has, who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. 
For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know that it is like what it is like to have me against you. Could you imagine? That's a frightening phrase there. You will know what it's like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. So for 40 years, they will wander this desert until an entire generation, 20 years and older, fall dead in the desert, minus two, Caleb and Joshua. So Moses has got to break the news to the people. So that's where we are in verse 36. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. And of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua and Caleb survived. And when Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they went up toward the high hill country. We have sinned, they said. We will go up to the place the Lord promised. See, now that, okay, we'll do it now, right? Oh, no, 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 okay, we're in now. Sorry, Lord, we're back, we're back. In, in verse 41, this is what Moses says. Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there because you've turned away from the Lord. He will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Look at verse 44. Very dangerous words. Nevertheless, in their presumption. In their presumption, they went up toward the high hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp. And then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. And in this, you need to know that God hears complaining and grumbling and negativity. He does. And the story is a reminder for us that we ought not to give our hearts to a bunch of complaining and grumbling and negativity because God hears it, and he doesn't like it. And secondly, what we'll see is God rewards those who are willing to stand on his promises and trust them and has more confidence in the promise of God than the enemy or problems. And see, ultimately, a lack of faith is I have more confidence in my problems abilities to overwhelm me than God's promises to take care of me. And in it, what we see is at least two, one being Caleb, who has a different spirit, who is wholeheartedly devoted to God. That Caleb is not a fence-sitter, and he's not just going to stand around and wait and try to figure out which side he should be on. He knows that God has made a promise, and he's willing to follow it is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made us, they are all yes in Christ Jesus. No matter how many promises God has made us, they are all yes in Jesus. Can I fast forward 45 years and finish up this story? So Joshua chapter 14, this is how the story ends. Joshua chapter 14. This is after... After all that generation died in the desert, and after Joshua then leads them on a conquest to the, Can- to the land of Canaan, verse 6, Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and it's Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, who said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses was a servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my conviction. Right? 40 years old, right? I'm, look, look, I'm almost 40, so Caleb's my age. 
But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day Moses swore to me, The land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to me while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. He had to wait 45 years, but here Caleb is, 85 years old. Mimo, how do you feel this morning? <laughs> well, this is what Caleb said in verse 11. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Isn't that awesome? Oh, I love seniors who look like Caleb, right? They didn't retire from the Lord at age 65. They are just as confident in the kingdom work and battling in the kingdom. They feel just as strong. I mean, they might physically not be as strong, but in their hearts and in their spirit, they are just as ready now as they were when they were 40 years old to claim the promises of God and to move forward. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that when the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb. And i, I, I got to imagine this is a tender moment. Uh, when we were in Pennsylvania one time, our family, we went through Gettysburg. And I guess after the uh, Civil War was over, uh, they had a reunion at the Battle of, uh, in Gettysburg for those who fought in the Battle of Gettysburg. Like both sides. It didn't matter whether you fought for the North or the South. You, they were like every other year, these meetings of kind of a reunion of those who fought in the Battle of Gettysburg. And the last one occurred sometime in the early 1900s, and they have a picture. It's there in Gettysburg, a picture of the last two remaining soldiers that, are, that were known uh, in terms of uh, that fought in the Battle of Gettysburg, one from the north and one from the south. And so you've got this, pic- this great Civil War kind of looking picture of these two soldiers. And I remember as I was looking at the picture, thinking to myself, I wonder what kind of stories that they would have to, say, to tell from one another, that they were, they were it, they were the last two. And you've got two men, Joshua and Caleb, Could you imagine how many funerals they've attended over the past 45 years? I mean, they had to say goodbye to every friend, every neighbor. They had to walk through the desert with the people of God for 40 years. And now these two men, old as they are, probably have a lot to talk about, a lot to share, a lot of common history together. They've probably been through a lot of funerals, a lot of suffering. And here it is now, as the scene is closing, Joshua blesses his friend Caleb and gives him Hebron as his inheritance. Verse 14, so Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. And it says at the end of this verse, then the land had rest from war. This morning, my prayer for you is that you will have a Caleb spirit that will be different than anybody else around you, and that you will serve God wholeheartedly, and in that, you will have as much strength and faith to look at any problem, any struggle, anything that's coming against you and be able to say, I'm not afraid of you one bit because of my God, who is greater and larger than anything that could come against me. Would you mind standing? Let's pray. Let's ask God to give us that spirit together. Father, we give you thanks for your word and for, in your word, the stories that we have, men of faith and women of faith, and how you've interacted, and Lord, we want to learn well what it is that you're trying to teach us through your word. And so uh, this morning what I'm asking is that you would give us a spirit that looks like your servant Caleb, that it would be different than anyone else around, that we would be so wholeheartedly devoted to you and have such confidence in you that nothing would ever shake us. And so I ask, Lord, whatever it is that's in front of us that seems to be frightening, 
whether it's some issue of health or whether it's an issue of finances or relationship or whatever it might be, we ask, Lord, that you would give us strength and courage, that you've made us promises, and we know you are always faithful, that in Christ Jesus, everything you've promised is a yes. And because of that, we thank you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.